0: If you don't know me, my name is Gunnar. I am one of the pastors here. And we're about to jump into the scriptures and dwell on the amazing reality of Jesus and, and what he's done. Can, can we can we get a little excited for that, right? Talk about Jesus? Woo! Yeah! In the midst of volcano and bad news everywhere, we, we get to come and talk about Jesus. And more than that, we get to dwell on um, how his life, how his work, how his teaching Uh, encourages us to take a bold stand for Jesus, even if it costs us, even if it comes at discomfort. Why should we follow Jesus? Why should we boldly follow Jesus? Well, we have the reason for that in our text today, and this is much needed because we live in a day and age where conviction is collapsing, Uh, no one is entirely sure about anything, it seems. Virtue is vanishing, and If we as the Church of Jesus are not ready to take a bold stand for Jesus we will find ourselves being the ones who will fall or kneel for anything or anyone we will just be going with whatever direction the culture around us is going but we want to go where Jesus would call us to go so our text today is Hebrews chapter 2 we're gonna be Dealing with verses 10 through 18, wrapping off the second chapter. And the title today is Taking a Bold Stand for Jesus. And I love this about our faith because our, our faith isn't simply about telling us what to do, it is also telling us why to do it. For example, we were doing the giving part here today. The Bible says not that God loves a giver, but rather God loves a cheerful giver. So it's not only telling us what to do, it's how should we do the things that God called us to do and so here we are going to be dwelling on in these verses the glorious humanity of Jesus and how his sacrifice how his work actually gives us the reason for why we should stand boldly before Jesus Um, it's not to receive mercy it's rather because of the mercy we have already received it's not to earn grace but rather because of the fact we can't earn grace. And so that is what we're dwelling on today. So let me start with verses 10 through 11, the first part of 11, and we're gonna dwell on Jesus who is our salvation and our sanctifier. And so it says here, would you stand with me for these, like this verse and a half as we read this together? For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source amen you may be seated so this is this is God's glory being revealed through Jesus and we talked about it a little bit two weeks ago how strange it is to say the glory of God is revealed In a suffering Messiah how strange is that and then he says there for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering it was fitting and I don't know about you but when I read that I was like how is that fitting (laughs) here's God he's come to save us how is it fitting that he should save us through suffering that Here's the creator, sustainer of everything, and, and he is allowing his own creation, whose breath he gives, to nail him to a cross onto a tree that he created on a hill that he made. How is it fitting at all that he should save us through suffering? Well, as you read your Bibles, what you'll find, it says the wages of sin is death what are wages for those of you who are like 14 in the room let me tell you wages are a beautiful thing one day you're gonna see the beauty of wages and you're gonna see the horrors of taxes and and uh, wages are basically what you get for your work and if you give yourself to the work of sin what is it that you reap what is it that you harvest you harvest death the Bible says and so what does it look like for Jesus to take the consequences of sin that we had earned he had to die in our place that we might live in him the result of sin is agony after all like and, I, and again you may be new here we we say this all the time the word sin when the Bible talks about sin it's a term that's closely related to archery am I saying that right archery yeah for some reason that word just sounds funny right now okay it's taken from archery it's talking about missing the mark so when the bible talks about sin it's talking about you missing the mark for what god created you for and the result of sin the result of missing the mark that god created you for is agony because after all it leads to not only a broken world when we contribute with our fallen nature and brokenness but also when we sin, when we walk away from God, it leads to sort of internal agony for every human being as they drift farther and farther away from God. And if you think anything, if you know anything about Christian theology, it's that God is the source of life. He is the source of hope. He is the source of light. He is the source of joy and of beauty. And so what happens when we walk away from the source of life? death takes over what happens when we walk away from the source of light darkness takes over what happens when we walk away from hope and joy agony takes over and so here when the author of Hebrews is saying for it was fitting that he should come and die and that actually in in his death and his willingness to die for us is his glory seen he's actually talking about him taking on the consequences of everything that we've done the natural consequences of our drifting is for joy to be replaced by agony and light to replace by darkness and life to replace by death. And what Jesus Christ did when he came to die for us is he didn't run away from the darkness, he stepped into the darkness. He didn't run away from agony, he stepped into the agony. And how could he do that? but he's the only one qualified. Because he's not only man, he is God in flesh. Because only God in flesh could do this as there is no darkness in glory, there is no agony in paradise, and there is no death for the one who is from eternal to eternal. It was fitting because real love, real giving, real forgiveness involves a lot of sacrifice. You see, many view sort of religions as what we do for God. It's a lot about that. It's about here's traditions, here's a priest wearing a robe for some reason. Why, we don't know, you know, but we're doing this for God. We're, we're being very strict about our religion. But here's the, the mind blowing part about Christianity that our hope is not found in how good we are at being religious. Like you wanna hear about a religious person who was big in God's side? He was a thief hanging on a cross. He didn't go to church. (laughs) He didn't do anything that seemed to be anything that we know of that seemed to be very religious. The only thing that he did was hang on a cross and say, Jesus, will you remember me as you walk into paradise? His theology was probably all over the place. Only thing he did was he saw Jesus and he knew, I need to cling on to this guy. And so, a lot of people, when we think about religion as a whole, you think about what we do for God. Like, a lot of us would identify with with King David here in 2 Samuel 24 24 and it's it's a it's a scene where King David is gonna sacrifice for God but he refuses to sacrifice something that didn't cost him anything and so he makes sure to get something that cost him a lot so that he could give it to God and for a lot of people we we might think "Oh, okay this is awesome this is me being great, a great Christian. and, and uh, This is what faith is all about. This is what religion is all about. What I can bring before God. And even though I love the heart of David here, how awesome it is that today we are not talking about King David and what he can do for God. But rather what God did for King David. What God did for you and me. The greatest sacrifice of all you can spend the rest of your life the rest of your energy every single breath praising the name of Jesus and you can never repay him for the gift that he's given you because today we come together to celebrate the forgiveness of sins and it came at a cost but it wasn't at our cost it was at the cross of Jesus Christ dying in our place and it was fitting that Jesus should suffer because he is love. And in love, he absorbs the costs of our rebellion and he gets in turn what he cherishes. And the strange thing about that is that he cherishes you, <laughs> he cherishes me. Later on in Hebrews, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? Was it fellowship with the Father? I'm certain that that's joy for Jesus, but he already had that before the cross. He didn't have to die on a cross for that joy. What was the joy set before him? It was you. Look at the person next to you, how strange they are. Like, that person was the joy set before him. You and me. I wonder, who are you laughing at? just kidding but more than a savior our our text reminds us Jesus is also our sanctifier and you might be asking yourself the question what is a sanctifier well that's a great question let me answer that Uh, because I'm I'm done asking you guys you know (laughs) now anybody in here want to give us the answer of what what a sanctifier is (laughs) see that's what I thought yeah that's what I thought (laughs) okay so you might know the word saint Right, uh, some of you are like not church-going folk, and the only saint you know is uh, what is that Irish saint, Saint uh, Patrick. Saint Patrick? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you might know him not because of really Christian reasons, right? Well, that's where we get the word sanctification, and the word saint are pretty closely related. And it's relating to holiness in some ways, and it's also kind of. It means that someone or, or something is to be holy or to be set apart. It means to be set apart from the rest. So if we think about God is holy, how is God holy? Well, he's creator. We are not. So he's definitely set apart into a whole different category unto himself. He is perfect, the rest of us. Not so much. Lizzie is getting pretty close, but not so much. You know, like we, we he, God is set apart in a totally different category than the rest of this world. But here in our verse, he says this weird part that Jesus is our sanctifier. Okay, that makes sense. And we, the ones being sanctified, share the same source. Do you know this, that the Bible talks about saints Right? And for a lot of us, when we think about saints, we think about people a few hundred years ago who were particularly great Christians who are known as Saint so-and-so, right? Saint Augustine or uh, Saint, I don't know, Mary. or you know. And some of you might, might have grown up in traditions telling you that saints are people that you can pray to. And that's definitely not something that the Bible teaches. Um, But here's the weird thing. You don't know this. When the Bible talks about saints, it's actually talking about you and me. It's talking about anybody who is a Christian who has been sanctified by Jesus. The Bible refers to any Christian as a saint. And again, it's not because you're so great, but rather because of what Christ has done in you. What Christ has done for you. When when we become followers of Jesus, we're set apart in our lives to live for a different kind of kingdom, to live for different kinds of values, to live with different kind of hope that's not just based on all the things that we see or all the things that we have, but rather all the things that we don't see and all the things that are coming. And here is this awesome reality that we have to, we have something to live for that's not just in these fleeting moments or what you could get in the future, but rather what you already have in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, then you've been set apart to, to live as this kind of weird traveler here on earth. No matter what your passport says, no matter what your registration with uh, the government says about where you live, ultimately, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are all here for a moment, traveling through this world, on our way to our true home. We are set apart to live as these weirdos here on earth, not really settled anywhere, and yet belonging to a family that's everywhere. It's weird. And before I lay out these sort of three ways that the Bible talks about sanctification, let me clarify this. Uh, When you become a Christian, When you surrender your life to Jesus to to follow him and to trust in his saving work, you are now what the Bible calls justified. Anybody use the word justified in a sentence last week without talking about Jesus? No? Okay. So, justified, meaning you are declared innocent. If you come to Jesus and you say, I believe that you died for my sins and you are Lord of my life, then you have been justified. You have been at that moment declared righteous. Your debt has been paid. Your sin has been washed away, and then Jesus has taken on the punishment of your sin. Now, how many of you know? After that moment, we're basically all the perfect Christian, right? Anybody? No? No one here is the perfect Christian. Let's see, man, this is this is sad. This is a bad church. If you're in here, if you're coming for the first time, you should find a different church uh, because I, there's no one, not one perfect Christian in here. All right. No, there's a joke that says, if you find the perfect church, never join it, because you will ruin it. (laughs) Um, No, we all know the fact that we are not perfect. We come to Jesus, we have been justified, we have been declared as innocent, and yet we are still very, very imperfect. And that's when this word, sanctification, comes in. And there are three different ways that the Bible talks about sanctification. but that's separate from justification. It flows from the fact that you are now declared innocent but now God has given you this amazing promise that he's gonna set you apart and he's gonna do it in three different ways. So God, he sanctifies us in three different ways. And first way is the past. He separates separates you from your old self to live a new life for him. And uh, you can see this like right here in 1 Corinthians 6. 9 through 11, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you look at this text long enough, and if you take it seriously enough, you will probably find yourself in one of these categories. So this is bad news. So, why do we call it good news, that Jesus came and died? Well, we read on in verse 11, "...and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God." What is he saying there? He's talking in past tense, saying, you have been justified. That's already been done and you have been sanctified you've been set apart you are no longer defined by who you used to be god is calling you to a new life in christ and a new calling in christ and notice the past tense here you were sanctified you have been set apart and a similar thing happens in romans we're going to do a baptism here later on today romans 6 is a great chapter to read on if you're interested in learning about baptism but in verses 10 to 18 there When Paul is talking about baptism and how it points to being buried with Christ and to live a new life for Christ, he's mentioning this, we are dying to sin. And the promise of God is that sin's dominion is cut over our life. We are dead to sin and free to live for God. And there's a reorientation that takes place at that moment. There are new desires that start popping up in our mind and in our life and in our hearts. So we are used to living in a world where the healthy they're contaminated by the sick, right? We learned this in COVID. If you didn't know this before COVID, then God bless you. But <laughs> I think I think we we got a sort of good education during COVID that typically in life it's never the healthy that contaminate the sick with their healthiness. It's the sick that contaminate the healthy, right? And uh, this might be weird for us, but when we think about Jesus, it's the exact opposite picture. It's he comes in as the healthy, infecting anybody who comes into contact with him, with his health, with his new life. He is the one transforming us to look more like Jesus. And this is a very common story with new believers. Uh, this happened with me, and I, I'm sure, raise your hand if you, if you can identify, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I haven't said it yet, Willie. He's <laughs> like, raise your hand, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, raise your hand if you can identify with this. Uh, I, I became a Christian, and then there was just some stuff that had been a defining sin in my life that just kind of disappeared right off the bat. Uh, when I decided to follow Jesus. Can anybody identify with that? Yeah? Yeah? There's a few of those testimonies in here. (laughs) I like how one started and started playing with this here. (laughs) Uh, um, But then, I think we can all identify with this. There was other sin that just persistently stayed there, right? And you just thought to yourself, why can't you be like the other sin that just went away? Why do you cling so closely? Why why do you just weigh me down like a blanket? What is wrong with this? Like you start to experience this sin, this stubborn sin that just won't go away. And so there, there's sanctification going on. He is defining, he's setting you apart to live a new life. And yet even in this sin that just won't go away, there's something that's changed in your relationship with that sin. Before coming to Christ, you just enjoyed it. I just loved being in sin, and I didn't mind. It didn't nag at my conscience. I didn't think to myself, I shouldn't be doing this. I just lived my own life, and I really enjoyed it. And then after coming to faith, that sin that stuck around, and I was, you know, like, when the Bible says we have to be uh, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, killing our flesh, right? For some reason, I always thought of that as like an execution takes like five seconds all right flesh is killed let's walk away let's do something cool turns out killing your flesh is more like a wrestling match that has no limit to the rounds it just keeps on going right but when when we start to follow Christ one of the things that reorients our minds and our hearts is that our relationship to that sin that we used to live for and enjoy is no longer there even though it's persistent all of a sudden you start to feel like God I don't want this And and you start to identify with Paul the Apostle who who wrote, man, what a wretched man I am. Why do I do the things I don't want to do and I, I don't do the things I do want to do? And you're like, yes, Paul, amen. What is up with that? So that's one of the way that God starts to sanctify you. He separates you from your past to live a new life. And then he goes into the present and that leads to this. It's called progressive sanctification over your life you start to look more like jesus second corinthians three eighteen says and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the lord and look at the tense here are being transformed into the image uh, into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the lord who is the spirit now what is he saying there In the past tense he said we have been transformed we have been sanctified we have been justified and here he's using the present tense and saying we are being transformed and you find similar ideas in second Corinthians uh, Romans chapter 8 and Colossians chapter 3 Philippians chapter 3 he is changing you to look more like Jesus and this is an ongoing process that that will not be fulfilled until the last and the third category, which is the future sanctification. So if you go to this passage, this is the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, you find that this is the consummation of all of human history. And what is happening? Heaven is coming down. And this idea that we see in that verse is that nothing sinful is going to be in heaven. So that that is why we need a savior. That is why we don't just need to try to be moral because all of us have failed already, right? By that standard, none of us can go into heaven. The only way for us to come into heaven where there is no sin is for someone to have taken care of our sin. So what does that mean? When we come to heaven, there's nothing going to be sinful there. God is going to give us new glorified bodies. We will be able to see each other there praise god together for all eternity what does that mean with regards to sanctification it means that it will be complete no longer will we be involved in living in bodies that just won't obey us sometimes and the feeling this battle between what what the spirit uh the holy spirit of god wants in us versus our our flesh we will just be with god and i can't wait for that day like i don't know about you but this joy This hope is so awesome, man. I I like, look at my son every single day. I think about Solomon and I pray, God, would you heal Solomon? That would be such an amazing testimony. Like, if he could run and if he could talk and if he could eat, man, how awesome would it be? But even if God doesn't do that here in this life, I know that one day we get glorified bodies. One day I'll be in eternity and Solomon will run even though he can't run right now. And one day I'll be feasting with King Jesus and Solomon will be feasting with King Jesus. Even though he hasn't eaten a bite in his life more than food coming through a tube. Even though he hasn't spoken yet here on earth, one day I really hope he's going to be singing loudly in heaven. And judging by his siblings, he probably will be singing very loudly. (laughs) Death will not be the end for us. Death is the graduating ceremony, a last door to walk through as travelers here on earth, going to our true home. <laughs> so if people ask you, if they ask you, "Berta, are you are you sanctified or are you being sanctified or will you be sanctified?" Then Berta, you can say, "Yes," like a politician. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Cuz the Bible says yes to all three questions. I am sanctified, I'm being sanctified, and I will be sanctified. And that's an amazing promise that we cling to. And if it were not for God the Son coming to die for us, there would be no separating us from the past. If it were not for God the Father send the God the Son to die for us, there would be no hope for us. And if it were not for God the Son coming to die for us and the Holy Spirit could not indwell us. And so the whole of the Trinity is at work at bringing about the sanctification to Let us live a new life. So let me encourage you to take a bold stand for Jesus. If you claim the name of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, embrace this amazing promise of sanctification. Remember that you have an amazing sanctifier who loves you, who cares for you, who can transform you, even when you feel unable to do it yourself. Right? Even as you're like me and you start your 348th diet to try to get to your ideal weight, and you're just like, ah, come on. should we really try again I don't know <laughs> even when you feel like your problems are just too big remember we have a Savior who's greater than all of our failures all of our problems and if you claim the name of Jesus Christ today but you have not experienced this process of sanctification with regards to sin if, if you ever were told in your life yes you are now a Christian but you've never experienced that your relationship with actually with sin actually changed that you never actually followed and repented and followed Jesus then i want to ask you today are you truly a christian is is it truly believable that i come into contact with the eternal god of the universe and i walk away unscathed and unchanged is that I don't know if that should make sense. <laughs> like that shouldn't make sense, right? If I come into contact with a truck, I'm gonna walk away pretty changed, right? But this is the creator of the truck, creator of the universe. Like, something should change within me. And if you've maybe carried the title of being a Christian, but you have not experienced a change of heart, even if it's just your relationship with that annoying sin that won't go away, it's just not joyful anymore. <laughs> and I wanna ask you, are you truly a Christian? And if you're not, then this can be the day where you say, you know what? I'm going to trust that Jesus is enough to save me. His death covers my sin, and I'm going to give him my life, and I'm going to ask him to be Lord. Let me tell you, he will take you up on that offer. He will start to change you and transform you. And then we read these verses in 11 to 13, and it says, this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise and again I will put my trust in him and again behold I and the children that God has given me. Now here again the author of Hebrews is highlighting the glorious humanity of Jesus by saying this. He identifies with us by calling us brothers. Right he, hermanos, yeah I know that word. <laughs> it's like the only, the only Spanish I know. Hola hermano, hermana, yeah now just stop and think about how crazy this is let let this blow your mind a little bit the one who spoke and I love this when you read your Bible so obviously Old Testament is written in Hebrew did you know it's been a while since I researched this so take it with a grain of salt but if I remember correctly the Hebrew word for when God creates is the word barach I don't remember what the Hebrew word for what man creates is, but it's not barach. So barach is like this idea of actual pure creation, right? And when man creates, it's more this idea of manipulation. You're taking something that already exists and you're manipulating it to look different or function differently. That is how man creates. Now, when God creates, he speaks a word to nothing and it happens. Right? And here's God, who is that God, who spoke and created everything from nothing, the one who is perfect in all of his ways, the one who is bigger than all of our problems, the one who is above every king and president or prime minister or whatever title they want to bear. He comes, takes on flesh, and he calls us brothers and sisters. That is insane the, the fact that he would do that here here the writer of Hebrews what he's doing is this first one in verse 12 when he says I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise so he's actually quoting the Old Testament this is a psalm in the Old Testament Psalm 22 um, and it's verse 22 that he's quoting and the other two quotes here I will put my trust in him And again behold I and the children that God has given me those are two quotes from Isaiah chapter 8 but I want to focus a little bit on on Psalm 22 because this reminds me of Jesus kind of like like a parent who's talking to their child when a parent goes on their knees I love to see that taking place when a child is like hurting and the parent goes to their level to talk them face to face they go on their knees they pick them up to hold them right here so they can have a a conversation face-to-face I love to see that from parents I don't know what but that reminds me of God like God sort of stooping to our level so that we can talk to him God of glory kneeling in the mud to meet us when he didn't need to and the reason why I want to focus on Psalm 22 is Do you remember at the cross, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. At that moment, he's not simply expressing the agony that he's experiencing. Did you know that he's actually quoting Psalm 22 when he's saying that? So if we rewind 2,000 years to imagine yourself being a Jewish Israelite back then, You didn't have a Bible that put numbers to Psalms. They didn't know them as Psalm 1 or Psalm 22. They would quote the first line, and that would be the name of the psalm. Like, uh, we still do that today. Amazing grace. What happens next? How sweet the sound. Well, everybody's like, how sweet the sound. Save the rats like me. Sometimes you just need a few words, a prompt, and you know what the rest of the song is all about, right? What is another? For some reason, I can't stop thinking about all the single ladies, but that's probably not, it's <laughs> <laughs> probably something more spiritual I can think of. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. We 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 quote a line from a psalm and and uh. And you know what the song is that's how they referred to their songs back in the day so when God when Jesus is yelling out my God my God why have you forsaken me everybody who is Jewish at that point would have thought about Psalm 22 and if you read Psalm 22 it is a, a prophecy about Jesus right I forget when Psalm 22 is written 800 years before Christ I think before crucifixion was ever invented you find a prophecy About Jesus and actually the funny thing is or not the funny thing the interesting the fun fact when you read your New Testaments and you read about the crucifixion there's very little detail given about what it was like you know I was talking to one who had recently come to the faith and it's like I'm surprised how you just kind of there's one page talking about Jesus was crucified and like and then it moves on to the next and uh, the interesting part is that if you really want details about the crucifixion you have to go to the Old Testament before Jesus was even born you have to read the prophetic passages about how the Messiah would suffer like Psalm 22 Isaiah 43 like you would have to uh, read these passages to know what was actually happening so here in Psalm 22 we read this for instance they have pierced my hands and feet I can count all my bones Right, this is in verse uh, 16, yeah. They stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, who are they talking about there? Jesus, right? This is him being killed. Yet, this is written 800 years before Jesus ever lives. What's even more amazing, they have pierced my hands and feet. Can you imagine a death that's not crucifixion, Where they pierced your hands and your feet maybe you're just very unlucky and you fell on like three nails like how can you like what is happening in this passage when this is written the idea of crucifixion hasn't even been invented yet so the author is writing about the crucifixion describing the crucifixion hundreds of years before jesus arrives and when jesus is hanging on that tree he says my god my god why have you forsaken me and everybody there who is jewish would have thought psalm 22 this is him they have pierced my hands and feet they had just whipped him, so his bones were showing from the roman whippings i can count all my bones they stare and gloat over me they divide my garments among them what is happening before jesus that's exactly what's happening there but by verse 21 you see he mentioned that he's rescued from the people who do this and then by verse 22 we get to the verse that we're in Today, where it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And I was reading this, I was just thinking to myself, man, that's the cost of Jesus identifying with me. Right? We just want to read verse 22. What about all the verses before that, that not only describes him willing to identify with me, but what it took for him to identify with me. The cost of identifying with me carrying my sin my suffering to die in my place to take on the humiliation that I deserved now we live in a day and age where a lot of people have a high view of themselves a lot of people don't understand what's so amazing about grace and a lot of people don't find it strange that Jesus was unashamed to uh, call us brothers and sisters but then I go and find it difficult to not be ashamed of Jesus, to call him my brother. There's a lot of people who do that. Man, yeah, of course Jesus would identify with me. I'm pretty great. Of course, why wouldn't he want me as a brother or sister and yet we leave this building and we are the ones ashamed to identify with Jesus. What would my family think? What would my friends think? What kind of job opportunities will I lose out on? What kind of promotions might I lose out on? Will I get fired from my job for believing these things? They may be thinking of what others think of them or what others might say or how people might hate or despise you for that. Perhaps you struggle with feeling ashamed to call Jesus brother and your Lord because it might cost you something. Maybe it would cost you putting people over profits or respected your job, maybe it would cost you a job promotion or even getting hired for a job, but we should not be ashamed, so amazed, that's the, that's the thing I, I'm like, walk away with this and it's like, I don't want to be amazed. We should not be so amazed that we have unashamed people who identify with Jesus in this world, even though it comes at a cost. But rather, after reading this passage, we should rather be amazed that Jesus was unashamed to identify with us. In all of our failures, in all of our weak moments, that he would identify with you and me. We should take this love of Jesus, be filled with boldness, and say, I'm going to identify with Jesus no matter what. No matter what people say, no matter what I have to give up, no matter what negative thoughts or talks I have to endure, no matter what I have to change, no no matter what I have to give up. Whatever the cost, I want to be where Jesus is, because that's the best place to be. Because until God is enough for us, then nothing else ever will be, and sometimes it's at the moments when uh, the only thing that we have is Jesus, we realize then that Jesus is all that we really need. Like, and I think those moments are often happening at our deathbed, when we are faced with death, and really everything else that we used to live for, cherish, The opinions of the people that we used to just be so terrified of losing, all of a sudden that comes to nothing and we're just faced with God and Jesus is all we have. At that moment, will Jesus be enough? At that moment, will you realize that Jesus is all you truly need? And I want to implore you to take a bold stand for Jesus because he was unashamed to identify with us as a brother even though he was Jesus Christ, our Creator, our Lord, our brother. No matter the cost, whatever the reason may be for pulling you away from Jesus, I want to encourage you today. He was unashamed to identify with me, with you, even to the point of dying on a cross. As we go into this week, may we not be ashamed to carry the name of Jesus boldly wherever we go. Not because we're so awesome, but rather because Jesus is worthy of it all. And then lastly, I want to read these verses and quickly point you to Jesus as we go into this week. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So lastly, I want to say this. As to why I want you to take a bold stand for Jesus. Think about the titles and descriptions of Jesus here. Captain, brother, destroyer of death. That's so awesome, awesomely uh, like destroyer of death, like destroyer of death. Merciful, faithful, propitiation. Whatever that means. No, I'm just kidding. That means is, is that what you guys were thinking? He is a sacrifice on our behalf, atoning sacrifice. Right. That's what propitiation propitiation means meaning a appeasing or atoning sacrifice he's understanding and able to help who else is more worthy of taking a bold stand for Who else can handle the weight of your expectations of your faith? No mere human, no matter how great they are, can live up to the weight of your faith in them. That's why, man, I hope for all of you that none of you are putting your faith in a pastor like me or anybody else who is representing Jesus or serving Jesus because, man, our our job is pointing to Jesus, right? and don't like if you if you put your trust or your your entire faith on your spouse or your kids to fulfill you and make you happy like they will be crushed under the weight of that expectations because they're not God only God can fill that gap who else is more worthy of taking a bold stand for than this one take a bold stand for Jesus because he is worthy Plead with God to destroy your cowardice, your fear of man, this world, this nation, we desperately need you. You are here for a reason. Like the trend as an Icelander who's lived here for a few years has been awful the last 15 years or so. The trend among all the churches in Iceland is fairly sad. Like it's really, really sad. Churches are emptying out. Christians are tired. They're just... There's not a lot of things happening, and I'm wondering to myself how awesome it is that God is bringing all these Christians here from around the world. And I'm asking myself, like, God, please infect us with their willingness to serve, with their joy, with their hope. Like, don't, please, don't come here, and let us transform you into just, just. uh, Welcome to Iceland. It's a sad place. Like, please. Please, in fact, use your gifts to build us up and encourage us because we so desperately need you. Let, plead with God that he would use you in a day where conviction is compromised, virtues are vanishing. It needs people who just boldly stand for Jesus and proclaim Jesus, testifying with their words and with their life. He is worthy of it all. So stand boldly before Jesus in awe that he would identify with you. Stand boldly before Jesus with, assuring, uh, with assurance, knowing that ultimately one day you'll find out when you stand before God, none of the opinion of the people around you matter. When you stand before God, the only opinion that truly matters is God himself. So be assured of that. Stand boldly for Jesus because of his love for you. If he loves you, what can others do to take away your hope? And brothers and sisters, I just want to read to you this, These are new statistics about Icelanders and and our belief in in Iceland. This is the sad state of Christianity in all of Iceland. So, there's a guy who came in 2006, he asked a bunch of questions uh, about belief in God, and there's a guy, uh, well actually he's lived here all that time, and he came again and he asked um, 3,000 people living in Iceland about the same questions that he asked in 2006. So first question he asked is, I believe in a loving God that you can pray to. In 2006, 45% of people said yes to that. They agree with that statement. 17 years later, it's dropped by 20% that people believe in a loving God that you can pray to. Uh, There's no God other than imaginary gods. Here we're talking about atheism. In 2006, there were 20% of people who were atheists. Now we're at 33%. One out of every three people that you meet on the street are probably atheists. There's no way to know if God exists. Here we're talking about agnosticism, right? In 2006, there were 11% of people that were agnostics, 2023, 21%. God must exist, otherwise life has no meaning. Here we're talking more about deistic thought. Uh, That was true of 9% of people in 2006 and it's 4% of people today. Here, it's God created and controls the world. In 2006, there were 3% of people who believe this. And 2023, there's 1% of people that believe this. Now here, we're getting closest to what Christianity teaches. If you think about, I believe in a loving God that I can pray to, most religions will proclaim that. So that's sort of vague spirituality, right? When you get down to God created and controls the world, here you're talking about more of monotheism. Jewish uh, believers, Muslims, and Christians, right? So 1% of people identify as monotheistic. We don't even know how many of those are Christians. None of these describe my belief, 12% in 2006, 15% in 2023. Let's just say from all these numbers, the situation in Iceland is bleak. Whatever we've been doing the last 17 years has not gone over well, and we need us to take a bold stand for Jesus, and we need to stop really thinking about missionaries as people who go to other nations. You can be right here in a categorized, unreached people group and do missionary work in your daily life. Like, Let's not wait for other people to come in and save us. Let's not wait for other people to come in and, and do the work of evangelism. Let's remember, Christ has you here for a reason. Christ has you in that workplace, among your family, among your friends, for a reason. And we are called to be ambassadors of Jesus. So let me encourage you, as we go into this week, take a bold stand for Jesus. Like, look for opportunities to reflect him, to speak of him, to point to him.